How you spend your money is, in many ways, how you spend your life. So how can you generate not just a return on your investments, but a return on life? Welcome to the Own Your Wealth Podcast. Whether you're a working professional, a small business owner, or thinking about retirement, listen in as host Jason Deshays of Cook Wealth discusses tax strategy, financial planning, and more to equip you to live life empowered and truly own your wealth. Welcome and thank you for joining us today for Own Your Wealth with Jason Deshays. I'm Wendy McConnell. Hi, Jason. How are you? Hey, Wendy. Happy spring. Oh, it's feeling so good right now, right? It is. It is definitely. I love seeing the leaves like show up and the trees get covered up. So it's not just a bunch of twiggy nonsense. It's, yes. uh, it's a good time of year. Now that with the pollen would stop, even better. But we're almost there too. So well, with the uh, with the pollen comes flowers, so that's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have a guest today. We so do. We let's do. Talk to him. Yes. Yeah, so I'd like to introduce Rob Montgomery. He's the founder of the law office of Rob Montgomery, and we've done a lot of work together. And he's a excellent advocate for dentists and veterinarians, and just a pleasure to work with. So Rob, why don't you just tell everyone a little about who you are? Welcome to the podcast, and just you know what you do for people. Yeah, thank you, Jason. Thank you, Wendy. As you said, I, I'm a lawyer at a law firm. The law office is Robert Montgomery. We're better known through our URLs, yourdentallawyer.com, yourvetlawyer.com. We have other, a few other healthcare verticals that we're involved in. But we, we help professional uh, healthcare providers pretty much around the country, with the exception of California, with their a practice acquisition, sales of practices, partnerships, employment agreements, real estate, basically all the non-litigation issues that come up mm-hmm. in the, either the transition of a practice, starting up a practice, or selling a practice, and a lot of operational things too. We're exclusively focused in the healthcare world, uh, and uh, I've had my firm here since 1997, so well, 26th anniversary this summer and throughout my career, I've always represented healthcare clients. Uh, I have a team of seven lawyers that support me and four awesome paralegals as well. Most of my people are in Philadelphia most of the time, which is what I like to say in <laughs> the, the post-COVID world, Jason. People do work remotely from time to time in different markets around the country at different times of the year. But we, as we were talking about earlier, we were really a virtual law firm, though, prior to COVID. Uh, Mm -hmm. So we've been helping clients outside of our immediate geographic footprint for over 10 years. COVID was a little bit of a switch because for us, for a while, we went from being all bricks and mortar together to being being apart. But as all business people have adapted in the last three years, we have too. And I'm lucky I have a great team of people and we enjoy doing what we do. It's uh, it's and I love working with your team. They're a fantastic group and it's we've been through the same thing ourselves. We had our you know, our client base is pretty well distributed across the country. And there's even the people locally in the in the Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill area are the employees are remote part of the time and hybrid. And we've got clients who are busy. And so they're like, yeah. well, I, I can do a Zoom real quick, but I can't come in the office. So mm-hmm. it, even post-COVID, it didn't feel much different than it was pre-COVID in some of the right. sense, which is good. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm excited today to talk about some of the what you and I work a lot with is those issues that come up in the acquisition process when we're when people are buying businesses, those kind of issues that either they undervalue and just kind of hand wave away or the ones that they overvalue. And 
you know, get hyper focused on, but that has like real minimal impact on the big picture. So one of the ones you and I always deal with is cash flow and those yeah. cash flow projections with. So let's talk a little about that first. Like what's the from your perspective as their lawyer and the deal, does cash flow hold on the overall success of that acquisition? For me, and I'm not just saying this, Jason, because you're an accountant and I like you and we work together <laughs> and I'm on your podcast. I can honestly say this, that I tell people that you know, the that aspect in working with an accountant on that, on the cash flow is key. The success of the deal, 90 plus percent of the time hinges on that alone. You know, that looking at the cash flow, understanding what the cash flow projections are before you make that decision as you're pricing the deal, as you go throughout the deal, I mean, the success of the deal will greatly rely on that. There's a lot of other things that could be deemed to be minutiae. Like, oh, I don't want to spend $10,000 extra on that. You know, it might be 2% more in a purchase price. But at the end of the day, if the cash flow is good, then that's could be a good deal. And I think what, from an attorney standpoint, we can't make a bad deal good. Uh, and and really where people get in trouble and when people do bad deals is when they don't do all of their financial due diligence. You know, they really well, fixate on that valuation. They don't do the cash flow analysis. And if you don't do the cash flow analysis and you're proceeding with a deal or really any major business decision, then you're just taking what's behind door number two. And, mm-hmm. and you don't want to find out after the fact that the business decision that you made or the the deal that you did this is what the cash flow looks like, if, especially if you could have gotten your arms around a prior. Well, and what I find people go, well, that guy's making a lot of money. Like they mm-hmm. they look at the a current owner of the business and go, well, he makes crazy money. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. but he doesn't have a mortgage on it anymore. There's not a mortgage on his business. He doesn't have a practice acquisition loan. He doesn't have a line of credit that he has to do to fund cash flow. It's just cash flow. So mm-hmm. without like backing into that number and suddenly they're like, well, wait, I'm making a pay cut to do this. They don't like that. That's often not part of it because they think it's a good deal or it looks good just by looking at what the current owner gets. And it really can vary pretty radically when you start counting in debt, especially now with interest rates higher. It's not as a, a even just a year and a half ago. It was mm-hmm. such a significantly cheaper debt question about you know, two two point seven five interest rate, and that is not the case anymore. Mm-hmm. And those that is really makes it expensive. We see this in the housing market even now. People are trying to buy something. They're like, well, that sounds great. My payment's way higher than it would have been if I bought this thing a year and a half ago, even with a higher value. And I think that gets into the, the again the cash flow and the valuation. Is the value doesn't mean anything until you figure out how much is it going to cost to carry that thing? How much am yeah. I going to take home? Yeah, exactly. And sometimes we're people get tripped up too, is they'll look and they'll say, well, I can buy this practice for $500,000 and it's a, whatever, it's 60% of revenue. Or this other person wants 90% of revenue on their practice that collects $1.5 million. Like I, it's a better deal to, to pay 60% of the revenue on that smaller practice. Yeah, well, not really. I mean, because you might make three times as much money mm-hmm. by doing that bigger deal too. So, yeah. and none of that's intuitive. Like, you know, I, I've been doing this, as I said, for 28 years, you know, and I can't look at a deal and say, oh yeah, that's okay financially. You have to get under the hood and really break it down and look at all the details. 
And it's not just when you're acquiring practice either, Jason. I feel like any major decision that you're going to make in your practice, are you hiring an associate? Mm -hmm. Are you bringing on a partner? And I will talk about practice sales in a moment, but like they're the types of decisions that you can quantify. And the deals that are not successful, and deals being, okay, sales and acquisitions, but also calling hiring an associate a deal or bringing on a partner a deal. The things that are those deals that aren't successful are where people were surprised after the fact about the economic impact. Yes. I thought that I would hire that associate. I would make more money and work less. No, that doesn't work. <laughs> Not <that> first. <laughs> Not definitely right. at first. Right. But that's, you know, that's part of the business planning of what the projection looks like. You say, okay, doc, year one, you're going to take a hit. Year two, things are going to kind of normalize. Year three, you know, you could be making more money and working less, you know, and this is what it looks like. It's the same thing like in baseball, you know, like it used to be back even in the 70s and 80s, you know, managers would manage on their gut. This guy's good with the bases loaded, you know, like I'm going to put him in as a pinch hitter. Mm -hmm. Now, like good managers, none of them make those decisions like that. You know, it's like they're looking at, at statistics and what the probability is and what past performance They're money is. balling it. You know, Absolutely. That's, that's all it is. And that's totally. the same thing with it. And and I'll take the kind of a positive spin, too. Sometimes they don't want to do something because, they're oh, it's going to cost me a ton until you figure out the economics of, OK, well, if you want to translate that, it equals this. And I've always I've kind of taken that approach in my business and when I've been, been advising clients, especially in the professional services. It's like, well, that will save you 10 hours in the course of a year. And they're like, oh, okay, well, was that no big deal? Ten hours—that's like no time. I say, well, let's say you're an attorney, you're an accountant, you're someone who bills for their time. We'll take that times your rate, and all of a sudden, that seems like a no-brainer decision. But you mm -hmm. have to kind of get into quantifiable metrics that are like easy to digest. And we've been looking at that internally. We're looking at software and things like that. Well, what would that do? Well, if you got one client, it would pay for it for life. Oh. Well, that seems pretty easy. Why wouldn't we do that then? Right. And right. but if it's like, well, but it's it's X dollars. Like, well, I know, but sometimes you got to spend money to make money. And I think uh, it's all about the economics. And that is not, as you mentioned, an intuitive area for anybody. It, it, if you, you're a dentist, you went to dental school. You understand perio issues and getting crowns and those kind of things. But going like, mm, I'm very familiar with tax planning and, and the operations of a business and all the costs that go into running a business, including payroll taxes and benefits and fill in the blank and insurance coverage. That's not what they were trained to do. And they, right. and that's, that's one of those that you need the help to help coach through that because it, otherwise you're going to make decisions based on a very inaccurate gut. Yeah. And let's take this to another level, Jason. Let's look at, let's talk about large practice sales mm -hmm. right, where you're selling to a DSO or a corporate group. Those buyers are professional buyers. They're yes. the shark tank people. Right? <laughs> <For> them, <laughs> They've done this once or twice. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's all about the numbers. It starts and ends at the numbers. That's all they care about. They're not concerned about humans. They're not concerned about patients and clients. They're concerned about the return on this investment, whether or not they're going to be able to roll this up and enjoy the arbitrage of, of flipping this. Mm -hmm. So you have in those deals, the professional practice owner on one side, who's never been through this. And then you've got the shark tank guys on the other side. So there's no way that those professionals can navigate that without this kind of information. And I think 
that's one of the places where I see it's almost like a parlor trick, you know, that we we do with people where it's like you're going to sell your practice for five million dollars. And, you know, the DSO sends this letter of intent. And not surprisingly, Jason, the first line says we're going to buy your practice for five million dollars. Right. I think a lot of people just get drunk on that number and they stop reading. Oh, yeah. Right? And then there's all the other stuff that comes after it. But what they don't look at, and this is really where this is a key example of where you need this kind of cash flow analysis. What they don't look at is what is the cost of doing this transaction? You know, if you are a practice owner and you are enjoying the profit of the overall practice in addition to what you produce, you're going from being the owner to an associate in that practice. So Mm -hmm. let's just say that if you have to give them a five-year post-sale commitment, which is of employment, which is fairly typical. Let's just say that as an associate, you make $300,000 a year less than you are making as a practice owner. And if you have to do that for five years, that means that you went to work in that practice for five years. And it probably doing the same you were doing too. You're probably doing the same amount of dentistry or whatever work. Mm -hmm. You're just now the employee versus the owner getting that extra arbitrage as you mentioned. Right. So if they're going to pay you, let's just say in this example, $3 million and you make a million and a half dollars less over that five-year period as an associate, sure, you got the money, you can invest it. But, you know, that wasn't a $3 million deal. That was a million and a half dollar deal. Mm-hmm. And and with other sort of earnouts and holdbacks and escrows and promissory yeah. notes that- And taxes. Let's be honest. Yeah, I mean, that's, well, that's the yeah. other thing is there- Yeah. We've helped people- sell businesses, pretty substantial businesses. And it's always one of those things that the number, the punch drunk comment you made is really appropriate because like I sold it for $10 million. And that's like a crazy number for most people. That's like, holy Mm -hmm. moly, that's like eight digits. Sounds great. And I'm just set for life, except for once you start paying stuff, paying Mm -hmm. off any debts you had, Mm -hmm. you had your tax bill you have to pay. And then, oh yeah, by the way, they're not giving you the 10. They're giving you six and there's a four million dollar holdback that you may get in the future all of a sudden that number shrivels up quite quickly and and the lifestyle in most of these cases doesn't isn't supported by the new form of income because they're used to spending a certain thing they're used to living a certain way and now they have they've cut their income in half even though they got a lump sum and you go oh well now you got a lump sum no one operates on the lump sum and and we coach people that you gotta kind of almost prepare yourself for a, for a pay cut like a year mm-hmm. or two before and start living a little like leaner because guess what you sell something you are cutting off your cash flow and you better get used to not spending like you know it was the heyday of things otherwise you're going to mm-hmm. run out of that money real quick and some of it sometimes it's impossible too not mm-hmm. too long ago we had some docs that were selling practice for i forget the number but it was in the ballpark of like that it was 12 million dollars or 13 million dollar valuation and again, let's just talk about this. So they're going to sell, they're going to get some cash and they're going to get some equity in, mm-hmm. the, in the DSO. That equity doesn't pay distribution. So, you know, it's basically from a cash flow standpoint, you know, 40% of the deal just, just disappeared. It's disappeared, yeah. And, you know, they had a fair amount of debt, but it was good debt because they had used it to to buy and, and uh, do de novo locations, which was paying off from a cash flow standpoint, but that was going to have to get paid off. And so after they paid off the taxes 
and the paid the taxes and paid off the debt on the cash alone, I think they each walked away, would have walked away with a million and a half dollars on a 13 or 15 million Which dollar Which just sale. seems like peanuts comparatively. And you're, it's like, totally. oh, But it gets wait. worse, Jason. It gets worse, right? And it's like, I feel like the late night infomercial. And wait, there's, there's more. more. <laughs> and so they went from making $850,000 a year a piece. And the projection that came back was they were going to make 290. And they were like in disbelief. You know, it was like, Rob, where did you pull that rabbit out? Like, this is not a trick, you know, like, this is what, this is the way this ended up. And, you know, I had a perfectly heart to heart, you know, conversation with them that can you go from making 850 to 290 a year? Because, uh, because I couldn't, like, I couldn't take that dramatic of a pay cut and be able to still mm-hmm. pay all the bills and live the lifestyle you live. Very few people can, you know, and so, and they ended up passing on that deal and it was good for them, but they, they were so convinced, and here's the lesson that I want to circle back to. They were so convinced that it was a $13 million deal. How couldn't it be good, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. until you get under the hood and do this cash flow analysis, you don't know. Well, and so let's roll into the like the next thing. Like the You as a lawyer can pull a lot of protection there, but a bad deal is still a bad deal, or a good deal is a good deal, regardless of what a legal document says. And so what you see people thinking is like, oh, well, we'll just put that in the contract and it's okay. We won't have to worry about that. Yeah. I mean, I think some of the, the things, I mean, well, you know, I don't trust the other person. So make sure you you, you capture it on the agreement. It's like, whoa, hold on a second. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, if you don't trust That guy's trust a complete person, shark. Yeah. I don't want to do anything with him, yeah. but just, just make sure you write a few things and there'll be okay. Exactly. Like I, I appreciate the respect and that you think I have this kind of power in this world and authority to like change people by virtue of what I put in a contract, but like mm-hmm. it doesn't work that way. That's just the ticket to the lawsuit you know, that if they don't pay you, they don't do what, what they're supposed to do, that you can then engage in expensive litigation to compel them to pay you or do what they're supposed to do. And like some of that recently, we had a client who had an issue with a, uh, a promissory note was a very large aspect of the deal. And there were issues with subordination, whether or not they were going to get paid on that note. And they said, well, just make sure I'm extra protected. Like there's too many things for me to protect against. If you don't like the financial strength of this buyer, and you don't think they're credit worthy, then you shouldn't do this deal. Yeah. You know? And I, again, I can provide the mechanism for you to sue them if they don't pay you, maybe, but with the subordination, which is a whole nother lousy thing for somebody that's holding a note, your hands may be tied. Or how do you like the scenario where you are able to enforce this agreement and sue your employer while you're trying to work there when you have a 20 mile non-compete? Yeah, it doesn't sound like a great a great scenario for anybody. And right, and it's and then the other thing, like in low situations, I mean, all due respect, the only person who wins is the lawyer, right? Because mm-hmm. they get paid to litigate in the in that right. case, the litigator. But you gotta look at it, like you could say, okay, well, I'm owed money. There's a personal guarantee. They're gonna guarantee that they're gonna pay me. Until you go, well, they also owe a bank mm-hmm. who has way bigger legal pockets than I do. They owe the IRS who has a whole team of people who to go collect money from. And mm-hmm. I'm like somewhere in the bottom of the pile. Yeah. I am not going to get this or I am not going to spend the kind of money necessary to get an equivalent, like spend 30,000 to get 30,000 or mm-hmm. 10,000 seems right. stupid. And so great. You have all these things there. It may not still work. 
right? Unless you're exactly. willing to throw some real big bucks at someone to fight for you. Yeah. I mean, and litigation. I mean, I started my career as a litigator. I'm happy to say that I'm reformed. You're recovering. You're yeah, recovering, recovering, recovering or reformed. I, I like reformed exactly. better. It makes it, it like you went from better. the Sith and you became like a Jedi then. <laughs> Thank you, Jason. <laughs> and but litigators, like you said, they're wired to, to litigate. You take your car to Midas, you're going to come home with a new muffler, right? And so most litigators are not wired to think like business lawyers, like how are you going to solve this problem in a way that makes the most best economic sense for the client, you know, looking at the cost of litigation versus what they can hope to achieve. But as you said, there's no guarantee, even when this stuff is on paper, there are other creditors, even if you have a $500,000 note that was breached you could spend 50 to a hundred thousand dollars maybe trying to get collected and even after you get that judgment court the day that the judgment is rendered in your favor for five hundred thousand dollars doesn't look at the other side and says okay please bring your bag of money to the, here, to the court the tomorrow wallet, you know right just pay now the next thing is trying to collect on that judgment and even if you have attorney fee provisions in these documents that allow you to collect attorney's fees in the event that you prevail in the litigation, that's just one other tab that you have to collect on. And so it, these are not guarantees in the sense that if something bad happens, you are guaranteed to be made whole without aggravation. Now, again, with all this too, let's flash back to what I said a few minutes ago, that type of litigation is happening in the context of your employment, where you are working, trying to earn income, and you've got a non-compete, and now you're litigating with your employer, perhaps, over this. It becomes an, an untenable situation. Yeah. So, again, a lawyer, as you said, we can't make bad people good in contracts. We can't make bad deals good if the cash flow is bad, whatever there's nothing that a lawyer can put in a contract mm -hmm. that's going to make that a good deal ultimately for the client. And so, you know, it, with that aspect of things, again, doing the proper planning to, to ensure that, you know, that you're not getting what's behind door number two, you know what that is. And then uh, trusting your, your gut and your instinct, and the advice of your advisors, as you go through the process and say, I don't really think these people are strong from a credit standpoint, or I don't trust them. But taking those cues and making sure that you're you're seeing the warning signs. And, well, and, you and if you're if you're working with a good advisors who've done this before, right? This may be your first go at. It may be your only go either at buying or selling. And that's pretty standard. A lot of people don't buy multiple practices or sell multiple practices, but your advisors have helped people do that. And mm -hmm. they get there is definitely the gut the advisor going, I have seen this scenario 12 times in the last year or two, and it never goes well. This is like literally it starts to kind of replicate itself and you're going, this is going to happen. And they're like, no, 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 no. This one's different. It's not different. It will end up the same way. You will gripe about it and something will go wrong. And you don't, you go, you're going to have order. You're rushing through things just to get the done. Cause it's a good deal by some virtue. I have no, the cash flow didn't make sense and the person's a shark and somehow it's a good deal. I don't know. It's a pretty office in a pretty It's location. a very pretty office. It's just a prime location. I really love doing dentistry there. But all right. Speaking of that, let's talk about real estate because that's yeah. one of those other things that, you know, there's if you're buying a business, there's the business itself, the cash flow that it produces. Usually that's pretty much what you're you want. But there's often for even today in this post-COVID world where everyone kind of went home 
like I did at times, but it's, it's the real estate's important. And I've seen a lot of situations where they come to the table and they're like, well, I'm going to just buy the practice, but I don't want to buy the real estate late yet. I'm going to do that later. Or I am going to buy the real estate, but, or I'm in a, a strip mall or in some place where I have a landlord now. What are some of the hiccups you're seeing in the with real estate the, as people are buying or even selling businesses that kind of become a an issue? Yeah, there's lots of juicy stuff here um, on both <laughs> sides. So when you are buying a practice, making sure that, or at least you've you've quantified this decision that you like that location where that practice is located. So a lot of times people will go out and borrow. $800,000 to buy the practice and they're entering into a lease and they say, well, the lease only has a few years left, but I want to relocate um, in the near future. Well, first off, it's going to be challenging to get a lender to lend you the money to buy the practice if you're not going to have a lease that's of the same term as the loan. But even if you can find that situation, if you're paying top dollar for the practice, and then you're looking at relocating it in the near future, you're going to have to pay to, to relocate that practice. Well, that's a real cost of the deal. Else. Yeah. I mean, totally. that's a, and that's not a cheap cost. Uh, having our office just redid, we moved just down the hall and the cost to redo a space and everything is ex very expensive. And it's not, and that's kind of makes the deal more pricey. Well, let's let me throw a number out. Just, this is sort of just a, a rough number. Like if you wanted to build out a 2,300 square foot dental office from a shell in most markets around the country, you're probably looking at four to $500,000 to do that. Okay. Let's just say conservatively. So if you, again, if you paid 800 grand for the practice and then three years later, you're looking at another 450 mm -hmm. to relocate it. Now you're into this practice for $1.25 million, all that great cash flow work that you would have done on prior to purchasing the practice now just got changed because we just lopped on another another 450 onto that but then on top of that where's the money going to come from is the is your current lender going to be willing to lend you that money to to do that that build out in the new location when you still owe probably 90% of the principal amount of that loan because that isn't really due to amortization has not really gone down that much. So like, where are you going to come up with the dough for that? So I think you know, it's sort of as you're evaluating opportunities, if relocating the practice is kind of part of your business plan, that's something that absolutely has to be baked into the cash flow. And it's something that for me is a sort of a, a yellow to orange flag mm -hmm. you know, for the client that this may not be a good deal. Well, and the other thing what we see, people, well, I'll do the real estate later. And to be honest, that always kind of scares me because it's like, well, someone will give me the money later. They may not give you the money later. They may give you the money once. You have to go through this process now twice. And then as we've seen in the last year, interest rates have gone way up. And yeah. the people I've seen who just kind of bit the bullet and just did it all at one time, they are like screaming for joy because their interest rates, half of what everyone else was doing, they kind of mm -hmm. captured it. They may have paid a little more for the real estate because of the market at the time, but mm -hmm. the carrying cost is so low for the next 10 to 15 years that it makes total sense. And they really happily did it. But now some of the people who didn't, they bought practice and now they're stuck with their, now they have, let's say a, a not so happy relationship with the person they bought the practice from who is now their landlord. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that will continue.
for the next 10 years because they were, nah, you know, it's a fine. He's okay guy now until he wasn't an okay guy. And, and there's a problem. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's one of the things that had a wrap up on this is that you got to look at the whole picture. You got to not just like move forward and then say, I'm just going to do this. This is all part of that cash flow. It's all part about the leveraging your advisors to help you help. It was a help me help you kind of thing. I, mean, I think it's a Jerry Maguire, you know, right. but it's like you, that helps you make sure that you're not stepping into it. And no one wants it. We don't as, as advisors, Rob or I don't want to see anyone fail. We don't want you to get into something that's bad though. And, mm-hmm. It does, if you go into it bad, it's kind of no skin off our back. So we are incentivized to like, give you the truth and to be your advocate. And if you don't want to listen to it, that's fine. But it's also hard to help you once you've gone into the bad thing, because it's just going to be a headache for everybody. Um, totally. Yeah. And, you know, Jason, and that's it. Like, you know, in this example, like if, you, if you haven't been through this before, you don't even know what to think. Like there are things that we're it, it, some of it is just giving them things to consider, you know, like you don't want to buy the real estate at this time. Okay. Well, you have a 10 year practice loan. You're going to wait and see if you like the practice before you buy the real estate. You're not going anywhere in the next decade. So dismiss that. Or you may have the ability to borrow a hundred percent of the real estate purchase price. If you do it at the time you purchase the practice, but if you do it three years from now, you're going to have to come up with 20% Mm -hmm. of the down payment out of your pocket. Wow. I didn't know that. Of course you didn't. Because this is the first time you've done that. How many times I've have you bought it? commercial real estate? <laughs> right. And, and, and commercial real estate incident to the, the, the purchase of a practice. Mm-hmm. We've seen it a thousand times. So let me tell you what, after seeing this a thousand times, how this stuff could play out. And with for us, a good client hears that and says, oh, okay, got it. And then they take action on that. But like, you just don't, you don't realize that because some of this stuff just isn't intuitive. It's not like, no. well, you know, it shouldn't you be. Right. shouldn't be. What's even worse, though, is it's not that it's not intuitive. They want the deal to happen Mm -hmm. and they want to put blinders on to any roadblocks to that. And I've been there. I've done that. And you just you're like, no, but I want this. It's the house that you love so much. And it's just perfect, except the giant sinkhole that's in the middle of the house. And let's I can fix it. I can fix it. Exactly. I mean, let's not make fun of the pretty office. I mean, that's important. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, that that maybe this is a good one to wrap up on sort of an additional point, which is don't fall in love with the deal. And ultimately, don't put those blinders on. Always be skeptical. Listen to your advisors and do what's right. And if you see that there are problems with any of the stuff that we're talking about, the cash flow, the real estate, the overhead of the practice, the, the staff salaries, all that stuff, like there are other practices, you know, and the people that mm-hmm. fall in love with the deal who are going a hundred miles an hour to the finish line. That That is never a good mindset. My best clients over the years and the people that I've really admired and learned from weren't afraid to pull the plug at the one yard line with 10 seconds left and because it wasn't right. And it worked out well for them. And, and I think that people who, and, they, and the reason why they do that is because they've had that experience. They've seen deals go wrong when there are the red flags and the people that are doing it for the first and maybe only time, as you said, Jason, they don't know, you know, and so they want to get it done. They've fallen in love emotionally with the location of the practice. And I think we can all agree that is never a good mindset. 
Yeah, I, I was told one time you love people and you like and dislike things, and that includes practices. Mm -hmm. So, Rob, it is always a pleasure yeah. to talk with you. And so what's the best way for our listeners to get a hold of you? To go on our website, we have a couple of URLs, but probably most relevant for your audience, Jason, yourdentallawyer.com or yourvetlawyer.com. All the contact information is up there. We're actually in the process of a, a website redesign. Oh, but, cool. Uh, there's a portal there that you can ask, make inquiries. We also have a lot of good content there, podcasts that, that I do with my podcasting partner, our, our Dental Amigos We got to plug that, man. You got to plug Absolutely. the podcast. Uh, so yeah, Dental Amigos, I do with Paul Goodman, who is a, a dentist who has the uh, the Dental Nachos Facebook group, which is a great a great resource for dentists. I think there's 48,000 members in that, that he and I do a, a podcast and all business issues and legal stuff. And he being a dentist who also does some practice brokerage and consulting me from the lawyer aspect. So we've got that kind of stuff up there and we've got other other resources, webinars and articles and things like that. So lots to think about. And that's a great thing in this world now, Jason, where we are, like there's so much good content that people can really avail themselves of. But I will say that, you know, this is for them to understand the issues. None of that content is a substitute for personal, custom, legal, or financial advice. Right? Mm -hmm. That helps you understand the issues when Rob and Jason talk to you about problems with the cash flow, problems with the staff salary, or the transition of the real estate. That doesn't make you an expert because you've listened to 500 hours of podcasts. <laughs> Very good point to end on, Mr. Montgomery. So when do we just take us out? All right. So thank you, Rob and Jason. How can people get in touch with you to find out more about what you do? Uh, go to cookwealth.com or call our office 919-784-9100. So please like, follow, and share this podcast with your friends. Until next time, I'm Wendy McConnell. Thank you for listening to the Own Your Wealth podcast. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. Visit our website at cookwealth.com or give us a call at 919-784-9100. And don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. Cook Wealth Management Group, LLC is a registered investment advisor with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Cook Wealth Management Group, LLC. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.